I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. There's a silly little TikTok video currently floating around the internet of a guy answering the door for trick-or-treaters, and there's someone standing in front of him in a ghost costume holding a guitar. And he goes, ah, who are you? And the ghost goes, I'm the spirit of Vatican II. Of course, making the joke that Vatican II was all about the Holy Ghost and guitars. And that's sometimes the narrative surrounding the Second Vatican Council, a massive mischaracterization of what the Second Vatican Council was all about. And at the heart of it, at the root of it, if you talk to experts who have studied Vatican II, if you talk to people who were there, if you read the actual documents of the council, the council was rooted in the idea that sharing the faith and knowing the church's mission in the world is the most important thing. Second only to those of us who consider Holy Mother Church home being in an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that's a massive simplification of the Second Vatican Council, and that's why you should read the documents themselves and the brand new book from Ave Maria Press, co-published with Word on Fire, Reclaiming Vatican II by Father Blake Britton. And we wanted to sit down with Father Blake to really dig into how does Vatican II and the idea that we are called to be evangelists, we are called to share the faith, how do those two things go hand in hand. What was Vatican II all about historically in the current moment? What are some of the major misunderstandings around the Second Vatican Council? Why is it that so many people take it out of context or become incredibly uh, sidelined on just one or two particular issues? Why aren't we having a better conversation about this? And maybe even more importantly, how can we in daily Catholic life actually live the Second Vatican Council, and share the faith according to what Vatican II was all about and ultimately propagate the truth of the gospel on earth. This, of course, is all part of our Ave Explorers series on sharing the faith. You can find everything over at AveMariaPress.com, articles, podcasts, videos, Facebook Live conversations, so many excellent things that you can find available for you that I really think would, would challenge you and inspire you. But for right now, we want you to sit back and enjoy this conversation with Father Blake Britton about reclaiming Vatican II. Father Blake, welcome to Ave Explorers. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's awesome to be with you. Yeah. So I've had you on my SiriusXM show. So this is a treat because we get to do a, a longer conversation. Tell us who you are, where you are, and I mean, your father, Blake Britton. So <laughs> what you do. Yeah, my name is Father Blake Britton, as you already said, and currently assigned serving four parish communities and three schools. So it's quite a handful, but also an incredible blessing, a lot of opportunities for ministry and and amazing, amazing people here in the Diocese of Orlando. I'm very blessed in the ministry here. This It's a very thriving and growing diocese exponentially as well as the state of Florida continues to get a lot of people coming in. So yeah, yeah. that's a good problem to have is how do we minister to to this influx of Catholics moving to our state? And I'm currently working also as an assistant vocations director for the Diocese of Orlando. So I oversee the formation as well as really just the spiritual discernment of men who are thinking about the priesthood before they enter into the seminary. Mm. And that's another great blessing as a priest. Did you always want to be a priest when you were a little kid? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's something uh, I'm one of those few vocations, uh, maybe, I think there's a good number of us actually, but that really was always in my heart and Mm. I never really wanted to be anything else. Granted, initially it was inspired by Christ. So I accepted my vocation to the priesthood when I was around 12 years old and uh, never looked back, never looked back. Wow. And I don't regret the decision in the least. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, just regret I couldn't be ordained earlier. 
Yeah, you're on fire and it's very obvious. I'm curious, you know, there's a lot of parents that listen to this podcast. They found us through, you know, different avenues and they're like, okay, I have a 12 year old son. How can I inspire him to want to think about the priesthood? What was it as a young man, as a child? And then as you discerned into the seminary, what was it that was that really spoke to your heart about the priesthood? And what did other people do in your life to really make you think about that? Yeah. Well, two things right off the bat. First is I was raised in a family that made that a viable option, especially mm. through my mother. Now, my father's a convert to Catholicism from Protestantism, although he was practically an atheist when I was growing up, a, a very virtuous one, nonetheless, an amazing father, an outstanding man, but just was not really came from a background of understanding of faith. But my mother, on the other hand, was actually going to become a Dominican sister. Wow. And uh, she discerned out of the convent in order to enter into married life. So she has a very powerful and profound faith. She's of Hispanic origin as well, Puerto Rican. And that also adds to the depth of her faith and the understanding mm-hmm. that she has from her culture of Catholicism. So being raised in an environment where my mother was very encouraging of that lifestyle, if the Lord is calling you to it. So she wasn't mm-hmm. pushy about it, but she was saying, you know, if you ever feel a call to the priesthood, just know that's just as much on the table as being a doctor or, you know, being a plumber or whatever else you want to do, you can become a priest as well. So having it as an option that's viable and acceptable, I think is key. Mm -hmm. Not a hostile environment, but a very open and encouraging environment to that vocation and to the voice of the Lord. And the second was, I, as a child, was immersed constantly in Catholic culture. Mm. Uh, We were always at the parish. And not, again, in an unhealthy kind of way, but in a way to where my parish community was my family. Mm. I participated in the youth group. I was an altar server. I sang in the choir. My mother was actually the music director and also helped as the liturgist at the parish. She eventually started working as well with the diocese on the liturgical commission. So having that kind of environment as well, where I was constantly in the parish, Eucharistic adoration, you know, praise and worship, a Steubenville retreats, just all these sort of things going on all the time, fed my vocation. You know, yeah. I was just, uh, I was in this stew, if you will, of Catholicism and, yeah. and before it was a perfect recipe for vocation to the priesthood. You know, a lot of times we think about evangelization by definition and people think it's, okay, it's this program that you go to. And sometimes it is, or it's this book that I read. And sometimes that's the spark, but I like what you said, that stewing in it. I mean, living the Catholic life. And a lot of families don't know where to start with that or how to begin or do I have to set out liturgical living stuff? Do I light an Advent candle? We're coming up in the Advent season. I mean, is there any initial advice, especially moms and dads hearing this? Okay, well, I want my kids to stew in Catholicism about how they can maybe get that started. Yes. First and foremost, with the sacred liturgy. The liturgy is the source and summit of the life of the church. This is the premier place where we encounter Jesus Christ. Immersing our children in the beauty of the sacred liturgy, Mm. incorporating the liturgy of the hours even into your daily prayers of family. Not that you have to do the liturgy of the hours every single hour that they're assigned all seven times, but even just doing something as simple as saying a psalm and then doing Mm. a reading from morning prayer. That's something incredibly important. And you know, a theological point on this is Catholicism is not an ethical program. Catholicism is not just, you know, a moral code. And then Catholicism is an incarnate reality. It has to be touched. It has to be felt. That's the whole point of Jesus becoming man, of God taking flesh. We have a God who's not above us, but who's within us, who allows himself to be completely immersed into our reality and our love. We have to have an incarnate aspect of our and that's why signs and symbols within the home, as you just mentioned, the Advent wreath, 
those kind of things are incredibly important. My mother during the season of Lent, and this had a lot to do again with her Hispanic background, but nonetheless, the season of Lent is very important in Hispanic culture. Mm -hmm. Very important. And I remember our home was transformed during the Lenten season. You know, we didn't spend time on television. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the car, there was no radio. It was silence. Mm -hmm. Uh, We made sure that we ate more simply. My mom would put a crown of thorns with uh, three nails in the living room, you know, on on the table or on the kitchen counter. So these kind of things reminded us in the house, okay, there's something different going on. And then we lived at the church during Holy Week. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, jokingly say we should have just had a bed there, but Holy Thursday, Good Friday and Holy Saturday, we were at the church till midnight, 1 a.m. every single night. Mm. And we helped the priest decorate for the masses and and it wasn't just our family, but all the families together. It was a very cultural event, um, again, in that depth and brilliance of Catholicism. So yeah. I think finding ways to integrate and to incarnate the faith, especially for smaller children between the ages of infancy going to about 12 years old, that's yeah. very important. Very important. Yeah. I know I um, we have a little decade of the rosary hanging in our kitchen and it fell a couple of days ago. Like I didn't even realize it had fallen. And it was a big, my daughter, where's the rosary? And like, it's not like <laughs> I really pointed it out. It wasn't something we haven't like sat at the kitchen table and prayed it, but she knows that it's there. And it's these visual reminders that, like you said, immerse them in the faith. This yes. is a very, I'm going to say the phrase, even though some people might turn the podcast off, a very Vatican II thing, right? This immersion right. into our understanding of Christ as part of our lives, that universal call to holiness. And that's that's kind of your thing, Father Father Blake, that's how I stumbled upon you listening to the Burrowshire podcast, but also your new book from Ave Maria Press, Reclaiming Vatican II. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write a book about Vatican II. Was it a matter of somebody calling you and saying somebody needs to write this book or was this really a passion on your heart? It was a really organic development, a combination of several things. First, meeting a wonderful old Irish Monsignor, which I feel like all of us have at least one of those in our lives, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I worked Uh, for one. It was great. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, just a delightful and holy man. I was assigned as a seminarian to his parish for the summer. He took me out to lunch just to integrate me into the community and sort of introduce me into, you know, the ethos of the parish life. And he passingly mentioned how he was present at the Second Vatican Council as a secretary I'm sitting there thinking, wait a second, you can't just say you're at an ecumenical council of the Catholic Church, which is a big deal, by the way. I mean, there's only been 20 of those, right, Mm -hmm. in the history of 2,000 years. So to be present at an ecumenical council is a pretty big deal. So he began to regale me with stories about Vatican II, and that actually started my fascination with this incredible, incredible event in church history. Mm -hmm. Later on, I started reading the documents firsthand for myself. And that led to a a second stage, if you will, my conversion or appreciation of the Second Vatican Council, which was a disconnect or a lack of realization on the local grassroots level between what the documents stated and what was happening practically. Mm. In other words, there was a disconnect between what I read and what I saw happening on the ground level at local parish communities. And I started asking, well, why did that happen? What, why is it that I read something that the council fathers explicitly said to be done or explicitly said not to be done. Mm-hmm. And yet those things are not realized on the parish level or in my local community or in the diocese, whatever it might be. You know, these are just, this is just me thinking through questions. And I don't say that judgmentally or critically. It was just me using, you know, rationality to sort of say, why, what happened here? Did something take place that I'm not aware of? So I started doing research in that direction. Couldn't really find any answers until I stumbled across an essay by a famous 20th century French Jesuit named Henri de Lubac. He was a very well-known patrician, meaning he studied patristics 
the writings of the early church, apostolic and early church fathers. And he wrote an essay called The Paracouncil, On the Paracouncil. And he was the first one to give me a paradigm or, or a, a worldview that allowed me to understand what took place. And he mentions how in that first decade after the closing session of the Second Vatican Council, there was already disambiguations taking place, how mm. certain theologians, certain media outlets were disappointed with Vatican II. They did not think that it was radical enough, that it was extreme enough. In their mind, it was far too conservative. So what they did is they started traveling in various parishes, dioceses, and not promoting Vatican II, but rather their own personal ideologies under the auspices of Vatican II. Mm. And this became widely disseminated in the next 50 years. And Joseph Ratzker will speak about that actually as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI in his letter, a public letter that he disclosed on the sexual abuse crisis. But he mentions how after the council, there was a great number of persons who did not properly either because they were disappointed or didn't agree with the council's teachings, they started peddling their own personal ideology. So identifying that made me aware of the factions that are currently developing in the church. Mm -hmm. So you have on the one hand, what I properly call paraconciliarism. Some people will call it liberalism, but I don't think that's appropriate to say that they're liberal. I don't think they're liberal. It's just, it's, it's this paraconciliar, anti-conciliar kind of narrative that's been strewn by this misinterpretation. And then on the other hand, we have the reaction to that paraconciliarism, which mm -hmm. is traditionalism, the organizations like the SSPX. And they're always at odds with each other over Vatican II. But the only issue is neither of them know Vatican II whatsoever. Right? <laughs> right. So neither of them are really going to the root of Vatican II. And that led to the third component, which is as I started studying the Second Vatican Council more deeply, looking at its origins, where it came from, I realized how unbelievably beautiful and profound Vatican II is. And my heart was disappointed that it's been regulated into these two factions mm -hmm. that we sort of sacrificed, if you will, the real essence of the council, the genius of the council, the council fathers to these warring factions or camps within the church. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I entitled it Reclaiming Vatican II. We yeah. need to reclaim it from these extremes and come back to the real profundity and beauty of the Second Vatican Council. How's that going? Are people open to that project? Oh, absolutely. I have mm -hmm. been unbelievably encouraged by the response and very humbled, to be honest with you, by the Holy Spirit, because I did not expect this. And initially, it was only an essay that I wrote for Word on Fire. I you know, pitched it to them. They're very encouraging about it. Word on Fire is an outstanding organization. They actually co-published the yeah. book with Ave Maria yeah. Press. But you know, I wrote an essay. It was picked up by Ave and it immediately got thousands and thousands of shares, mm -hmm. you know, very, very quickly. And it became a popular article. And that's when Ave and I started the discussions discerning, you know, whether or not this is something that needs to be addressed in the church. And since the publication of the book, I am just so greatly inspired and so grateful to the Lord mm -hmm. at people saying, Father, we've been waiting years to hear something like this. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we've only ever heard it through the lens of these two camps. We've never heard just this sort of unbiased or unhindered, very disinterested in the proper sense way of approaching the council, right. not with an ax to grind, not with a point to prove, but just to say, hey, this is what Vatican II actually taught. And there's still a lot of grace to be said mm -hmm. here. And the other thing is, is I went through great efforts to speak about some of the hot topics, especially in regards to the liturgy, but at the same time to avoid them, mm -hmm. to also go, not just let my whole book be about the hot topics, but also to really allow my book to speak about the things that are unrealized still from the Second Vatican Council, especially in the area of patristics, biblical study, and evangelization, yeah. which are areas that I think we, because of the so-called liturgy wars, were not able to actualize perfectly.
Yeah. Father Blake is sharing so beautifully with us about how to actually dig into the documents, the texts, the value of Vatican II. And, and he's got a lot more to share with us. But we want to take a quick break and just tell you about one of our sponsors for Ave Explorers. This episode is brought to you by Hallow, the number one Catholic app for prayer, meditation, music, and more. It's an amazing resource for any Christian that's looking to dive deeper into their prayer life, find more peace, ultimately grow closer to God. I use Hallow every single day. I pray my morning rosary with Hallow. Usually when I'm driving back from dropping off Rose at school, I use it for Lexio Divina, examines. They have pray lists. You heard me say that right. Pray lists, not playlists. Pray lists for calm, humility. They have these awesome minute meditations for these brief moments with God throughout your day. I'm not just saying that I'm a fan of Hallow because some of my friends are on Hallow. Father Mike Schmitz, Jonathan Rumi, Dr. Scott Hahn, yours truly. I did a reading of the book of James for one of their nighttime meditations. It's an incredible app. I would be using it even if I wasn't involved with these guys, even if they weren't sponsoring our show, which we're so grateful that they are. Don't take my word for it, though. Here are some quotes from a Hallow user. This app has been an answer for my weary soul. Tears pour as I try to impress on you how deeply I'm impacted by the guidance into simply being with God. This is where my soul is finding peace for the very first time. I mean, the proof is in the pudding, folks. You should totally download Hallow and deepen your relationship with God with one of more than these 3,000 audio-guided prayers and meditations. Go to hallow.com dot com slash Ave Explorers. There's a link down in the show notes to download it for an extended trial with all of their behind the paywall content. And and there's lots of stuff in front of the paywall as well, but you're definitely going to want to download it. That's hallow.com slash Ave Explorers. All right, back to this excellent conversation with our good friend, Father Blake Britton. I want to come back to the way that people talk about it in a second, but you, you said those three areas that a lot of people don't like to talk about. Everybody wants to talk about, okay, they stole the Latin mass from us or, right. you know, they turned it into felt banners and guitars and bongos. And which is know, not true. <laughs> it's not true. But also yeah. like, if that's how somebody encounters Jesus, like I'm not right. going to necessarily get mad about that. Like right. that's a whole nother conversation for a whole nother right, day. Right, right. But you said <laughs> evangelization there. And when I took a, a class on Vatican II in college, I took it from what some would call a more liberal professor or a, a paraconciliar professor who taught it a certain way. And I read Lumen Gentium and I thought, why aren't we talking about this more? I was 18 years yes. old in a, you know, a, a college theology class for the first time. My mind is being blown by it. What did Vatican II say about sharing the faith and evangelization and that project that all of us are called to? Yeah, this is the real brilliance and genius of the council. And, and to answer your question, I have to get some historical background. Yeah, please. Some people think that Vatican II just fell out of thin air and it most certainly did not. Mm-hmm. It represents over two centuries of absolutely amazing and in-depth theological development. So beginning with a field of study called archaeology, which is relatively new in the 1700s, 1800s, and you start having persons rediscover specifically apostolic and patristic writings. Now, this becomes the foundations of what we call the ressourcement movement, or that's a French word that means uh, resourcement. So all of a sudden, it was like opening a time capsule, if you will, a mother church seeing what her first children contemplated, what they learned. And we started seeing the early liturgies. We started Mm -hmm. seeing the writings of Basil, Cesarea, Cyprian of Carthage, Cyril of Jerusalem. And not only that, but they're now being circulated in first the academic realm and eventually even in the lay realm. And you have some powerhouse theologians that start reintegrating into the life of the church, the common conversation and logos, logos of the church the early notions of Catholicism. 
there are three major players, in my opinion, and there are more I could name, but three major players in that development. First is Johann Adam Moller, who was the uh, theologian of Tübingen. He starts getting now ecclesiology, which is just the study of the church. So he starts taking patristic notions of the church and integrating it into theology. That then is picked up by John Henry Cardinal Newman, who is now Saint Henry mm-hmm. Cardinal Newman. And he writes his famous book on development in the nature of the church. And then thirdly, Father Matthias Sheban, who takes the ecclesiology, the study of the church, and integrates it into the patristic notion of Mariology, the study of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, all of these things will come to a head at the Second Vatican Council and give birth to the document Lumen Gentium, which is really the hinge document of Vatican II. Mm-hmm. If we could encapsulate the true ethos of the Second Vatican Council, it would be Lumen Gentium. And it's this understanding that the church primarily is a worshiping community united to the Son that adores the Father through the sacred liturgy. Flowing from that adoration of the Father in the sacred liturgy, then comes her own existence as the mystical bride of Jesus. That existence is sustained by two fonts, sacred scripture and sacred tradition. This becomes the document Dei Verbum. And as we contemplate sacred scripture and sacred tradition, then we are meant to go out and to convert and evangelize the world. Now, that second word, which is key with Ressourcement, is adjournamento. That's a term that was keyed by St. John the 23rd in his initial address to the Cardinals in 1959. But he said, we need this freshness in approaching the world. It was post-World War II era. The world is now suffering from an increase in materialism, secularism, and militant atheism. There's a lot of hopelessness. There's a lot of despair. And before this, the church had sort of a circle the wagons mentality, mainly because of the fallout of the Protestant Reformation. So we can't blame the preconciliar church for that. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of things going on negatively. And so the church has sort of circled the wagons and said, hey, we're going to protect ourselves. But now in Second Vatican Council, you have bishops recognizing the world needs us. Secular society needs us, and they need us in the world preaching the gospel anew in the same way that we did in the apostolic age. There's a wonderful book I've been recommending to everyone by Monsignor Schaeft from the University of Mary entitled From Christendom to the Apostolic Age. And I think he captures this spirit of Vatican II in a very positive way, especially the document on evangelization, Gaudium et Spes, which in its own title tells you exactly what the council is all about joy and hope. Mm -hmm. Joy and hope. These were the two things that Vatican II wanted to bring the world again because it had been lost by the Second World War, but also by militant atheism, secularism, relativism, and materialism. Now we need to bring that joy and hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. So the Mm -hmm. accusation that Vatican II somehow secularized the church or somehow, you know, got rid of our tradition or was anti-Catholic is just foolishness. It's not rooted in the reality of the documents. On the contrary, Vatican II is very adamant about preaching the gospel without any constraint, you know, Mm -hmm. preaching the gospel to its fullest, to a world very much in need of it. You said those words, materialism, secularism, sounds familiar. Hopelessness. I mean, in the past two years, we could argue that that a lot of us have experienced that. How do you think people can, I'm going to say, live the spirit of Vatican II, knowing that that phrase, there's a silly little TikTok floating around right now of a guy in a ghost costume with a guitar and He's spooked by it and he's like, oh, it's the spirit of Vatican II. And sometimes that phrase gets used way out of context or as a criticism. But, you know, a lay mom of two kids with the radio show or somebody listening to this who wants to, you know, maybe they send their kids to public school or private school or they homeschool. So many different people listening to this are coming from different walks of life and are thinking, okay, I'm ready. Like, I'm ready to go do that. I'm ready to freshen the church. I'm ready to share that message with other people and and are going to go read those books or dig into those documents or pick up your book. 
how do they start? I mean, this is the question we've asked everybody, but specifically to you, knowing Vatican II is supposed to be this clarion call for all of us. What is the first step to becoming the kind of person who shares the faith vibrantly? Well, the first step is articulated in chapter five of Lumen Gentium called the universal call to holiness. Mm. If we want to really actualize not just the Second Vatican Council, but the whole Catholic project, you know, given to us by the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of Matthew, it has to begin with our own personal holiness. Mm. We just have to become saints. And that starts obviously with personal prayer, specifically prayer rooted in the sacred liturgy. We need to have the Eucharist as the center of our lives without any other distraction. Mm. We must be men and women of deep mystical contemplation and prayer. And there, again, there are three real practical things we can do and integrate immediately into our life. Number one, we need to renovate our devotion and love for the Holy Eucharist. And that's something as a parish priest, I preach over and over and over again. If we're centered mm-hmm. on the Eucharist, Eucharistic adoration, prayer as a family, that'd be key. Number two, the liturgy of the hours. The liturgy of the hours. We can't underestimate what a gym that is. And I have a whole section in my chapter on the liturgy just on that topic because the Second Vatican Council was adamant in saying that the laity should be having mm-hmm. liturgy of the hours said daily including in family life. And I think that if we just did that simple form of prayer, it would revolutionize families. And I've seen that firsthand with families in my parish community. And then third, of course, is regular attendance in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Twice a year ain't going to cut it. You know, mm. We, we got to go at least once a month. And that's a way to keep us spiritually healthy. So there's three very immediately practical changes. Now, mm. in addition to that, we need to couple it, of course, with educating ourselves with personal catechesis. That begins by reading the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Sometimes we don't appreciate because of the influence from Protestantism that it's not just about sacred scripture. It's also about sacred tradition. That was one of the things Vatican II addressed in his document, Dei Verbum. We need both of these wings in order to fly. So if we're only being sola scriptura, scripture alone, Mm -hmm. we only have one wing and we ain't going to get too far. So we have to have both, which means that we are just as much responsible for reading the documents of Vatican II, which is an active magisterial teaching of the universal church, as we are reading the Bible. Mm. That, that's mm-hmm. a big deal. So I'm going to repeat that. And it's yeah. just important to read the documents of Vatican II as it is to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. These are both parts of divine revelation. This one is the definitive revelation of the story of the word made flesh. The other is the way in which we continue to manifest that word and to live that word in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. Both of these things we're obligated to do as Catholics. They're part of our personal holiness. So I think just those, those two aspects, liturgical piety, which is then combined, of course, with personal catechesis and education, that's a great foundation to begin. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit may take you in various directions. Maybe you're feeling called to be a reader at Mass, or you're feeling called to do a radio show, you know, uh, to do a podcast. Whatever way the Lord leads you after that will be good, but we have to have those foundations first. Yeah, I love that idea of the foundation first, and then we move forward. Father Blake, where can we follow you? And of course, where can we grab a copy of Reclaiming Vatican II? Yes, yes, yeah. Promo code, Blake Britton. <laughs> <laughs> I do actually Support think my, we have a promo code. We'll put yeah. it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. Support my habit of fine wine and good cigars, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, all joking aside, so if you want to follow me, you can uh, do so through Facebook or Instagram. That's the best place because I'm constantly updating my Facebook and Instagram account with uh, different activities. And, and in addition to, to things on the Second Vatican Council, I'm also offering spiritual enrichment opportunities in, in a lot of different ways. So mm-hmm. I do a book of the month. I do monthly question and answer sessions on the live feed where people can tune in and they can ask live questions of me. So my whole goal is just to help us grow in a mutual love of Christ and the Catholic faith. I love the Catholic church with all mm-hmm. my mind, heart, body, and soul. I just 
she is what consumes me. She is what fills me with joy. And so I just want to share that, of course, with everybody as much as I can. So those are the best ways to follow me. If you want to read any of my published materials, you can do so through the Word on Fire blog. I know there's a couple of different areas with Ignatius Press and stuff. I've done several things. But uh, in regards to the book, it's being co-published by Avramira Press and Word on Fire Press. You can get it at either of those locations. It's titled Reclaiming Vatican II by Father Blake Britton. So that's where you can pick them up. And again, I, I encourage you to do so, not so much for selfish reasons as for, again, a much deeper reason. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a message that needs to be heard and one that will help all of us journey into the future for the sake of the gospel in a world mm-hmm. that very much needs it, the third millennium. So um, so please join me in this effort to reclaim Vatican II. Absolutely. Father Blake, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. God bless. You know, I, I always love how the Holy Spirit takes a conversation in certain directions. Father Blake sharing so beautifully about the way he was raised in the church, about the influence of his mother, and then, of course, later on his father after his father converted, and, and his real love of Catholicism and, and being steeped in it. You know, and I think one of the challenges that we face in our current culture is that sometimes being Catholic or sharing the faith with our kids, with our neighbors, with our friends, with perfect strangers, with our coworkers, even with our own spouses at times, right? Sharing the faith is sometimes hard because we think we're going to be judged for it or we think something's going to be taken out of context or there's confusion or fear, but I'm going to get it wrong. In Father Blake's book, Reclaiming Vatican II, he does such a great job of digging into the history, of digging into the topics, of, of digging into some of the controversies, of really explaining what this council was all about and articulating how it is ultimately rooted in this idea of propagating the gospel, of sharing the faith, which is what we've been talking about in this whole Ave Explorer series. I especially loved what he had to say about with our kids, becoming people who are focused on our liturgical life going to Mass, going to daily Mass, Eucharistic adoration, uh, Eucharistic procession, spending time with the Liturgy of the Hours, talking to our kids about feast days and, and, and Catholic moments, and really allowing our faith to start at home to then be able to turn around and step out into the world and share it in a vivid and vibrant way. We have been talking about this our entire season, and you can find everything we've created, including awesome new stuff that we've got coming up next week, over at AveMariaPress.com. There's a big banner right up at the top that says Ave Explorers. You can click on it, sign up for our weekly podcasts, sign up for our weekly emails, sign up for all of the stuff that you need to really be able to journey with us in this conversation about how to share the faith. We've got so many more awesome things coming up and we hope you join us. We'd be grateful, of course, if you give us a rating and a review to this podcast, subscribe, share it with your friends, grab a copy of Father Blake's book. It's linked down in the show notes. We think you'd really enjoy it as well as everything we've created. We'll be back next week for a whole lot more, some excellent conversations coming up. So we hope you stick around for all of that. And we're so grateful that you joined us this week. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.